Today we'll be reading from John 6, 41 through 71. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and, believe, and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, will give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? Yes. Outstanding, good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. Quite a lengthy passage, wasn't it? There's a lot there, and so it'll take us a while to get through it. At least two hours this morning. Woo! For those that didn't clap, go ahead and lock the doors. Okay, you're, you're here with us. The doors are locked. We're going to dive in. Now, this is a great passage. Uh, we'll try, to, try our best to get through it. Believe is our current teaching series, The Gospel According to John, and Feasting on the Bread of Life is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 6. We're looking at verses 41 through 71. And also grab your sermon notes out. Let me start off by just saying that the Bible uses sensory language for our relationship with Christ. Have you noticed that? I mean, for instance, the key verse in chapter 6 is Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's using sensory language. Maybe you're familiar with the verse found in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You guys familiar with that verse? It's a great verse. And then there's also uh, Psalm 36, 8. It, 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 it's inviting us to drink from his river of delights. Does that sound odd to you? That he's talking about this relationship we have with Christ, intimacy with him. Drink from his river of delights. Feast at the abundance of his table. I love that, and I think it's important to understand that our relationship with God, 
with Christ Jesus is not only objective and factual, but it's also subjective and experiential. Experiential. So, it, so it's left brain, that's rational, and it's right brain, it's re- relational. So, so the gospel is intellectually sound, but it's also experientially satisfying. So you've got to have both of those. If you're going to truly know Christ, experience Him, enjoy intimacy with Him. In fact, I'm convinced that intimacy with Christ Jesus is life's most satisfying reality. I believe it's the best thing about the Christian life is that we can know the God of the galaxies intimately. And so what does that mean? It means really this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. And as Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's talking about the contentment that can be found in intimacy with him. So we defined that as intimacy last week. We talked about the bread of life. And, and so we defined it as this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth, and I went through a list of uh, really characteristics of what this intimate relationship with Christ is all about. So I want to reread that this morning, and if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to that message. But uh, this is what an intimate relationship with Christ is. So do you have an intimate re- relationship with Christ? I mean, I, I understand maybe you've made a commitment to Christ, but did you understand that that was... That was entering into an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's, it's the best. It's, it's life's most satisfying reality. Nothing is more satisfying than, than knowing Him. And so here's some questions for you. What has God been speaking to you lately? You have an intimate relationship with Him, you say you know Him. What has He been talking to you lately about? Can you tell me something new He's been teaching you? Are you finding Scripture to be alive and active? I mean, sometimes I open up God's Word and it just comes after me. Just like, ah. Are you finding Scripture to be alive and active? Are you feeling both conviction and comfort from God's Word? So that would be the truth coming from God to us, transforming our lives. Here's more of the love. Uh, next question. Do you sense His love being poured out into your, into your heart? Are there those moments where you're just overwhelmed with the reality of the fact that the the God of the galaxies, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth loves you? And you're just like, you have that sense of wonder. I can't believe he loves me. And you bask in the reality of that. That's the love coming your way from him and experience. Remember, it's not just rational, it's relational. It's experiential. You can experience this in your life. Do you get together with him just because you enjoy being with him? Do you share your deepest thoughts and emotions with him? That's the truth coming from you to him, just opening your heart. I mean, the biggest book in the Bible is Psalms. It's just raw emotion, just bringing it to God. I love it, 150 chapters. Do you do that? Do you do that regularly? That's, that's really smart and really healthy, mentally and emotionally healthy to do that. Is most of your prayer life an expression of adoration and deep affection? In times, in hard times, does he give you peace? Just show of hands, how many have ever experienced the peace that goes beyond understanding in the craziest moments of your life? Yeah, absolutely, unbelievable. That's what he offers us. Can you feel him supporting and strengthening you? Are you willing to rearrange your life to show him he is the priority? Just a few questions talking about this intimacy with Christ. And so how do I know that I'm experiencing this intimacy? I'm going to have a contentment. And see, contentment is, and this is kind of where we finished up last week. Contentment is an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence and providence of God. And that would be a study all in itself. But there's this, this overwhelming contentment in that. So, so this message here is helping us to, to nurture this intimate relationship with Christ. So what does that mean to feast on the bread of life so that I can have my soul satisfied in him and, and interact with him? And that's what this message is about. This is what the text is telling us. 
So how to feast on the bread of life, you can see on your notes, you gotta first heed God's word. Here's the thesis statement for where we're headed. Heed God's word, believe in God's son, and then feed on what Christ has done. We're gonna spend most of our time on those first three, okay? I don't want any of you to get nervous when we start running out of time because I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first three and particularly on that third one, feed on what Christ has done. We need to learn how to do that. And then we're just going to, I'll just give you the fill in the blanks for the last three. So if you do that, this is what will happen to your life. You will see and savor and show his glory. Nothing like the glory of God. Nothing more satisfying than the glory of God. So let's start with that first one. So how to feast on the bread of life. Heed God's call. That's the first thing you want to do. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So let's just stop there just for a moment. I'm just going to comment very briefly because we're going to talk more about this next week. But how many are familiar with the term familiarity breeds complacency and even contempt? You guys know what I'm talking about there? That's what's happening here. So I was raised in the church, and if you're around the church for any length of time, over time what can happen to your heart is that the more you are exposed to truth and the less you respond to it, the harder your heart becomes. And over time, you become cynical and jaded. Oh, yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. I've heard that story a hundred times. No, no, you're missing it. If you're responding like that, do you have any idea what that tells you about Jesus and what he can do in your life? Are you living in the reality of that? But there's that, that attitude, and that's what we've got there. And I'm not going to say any more about that because you have to come back next week for us to talk more about that one right there, okay? Okay, so, so let's, keep, let's keep reading because we get into some controversy here. Buckle your seatbelts. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44 is a proof text for Calvinist. How many are familiar with Calvinism? You guys know what I'm talking about, possibly? This is what I find interesting is that I've even talked to Calvinists who claim to be Calvinists, and then when I ask them, what are the five points of Calvinism, they can't tell me, and then I would say, well, you're not a Calvinist because you don't even know the five points of Calvinism. And I think there's a lot of people that think they're Calvinists, but when, it, when push comes to shove, when you start going through the five points of Calvinism, also known as the five points of grace, they're not. And so there's a lot of people that kind of have an idea of what that is, but they really don't understand it. This is a proof text for Calvinist. So here's what Calvinists believe this text is saying. And I'm gonna quote from a renowned Calvinist. I went to his website and he unpacked these verses. This is what he said. And I quote, that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And everyone whom he draws does come because God's drawing infallibly produces the coming. This would mean that the Father only draws some since all don't come, end of quote. Now, let's, let's think out the implications of what, what he said in this interpretation here. If God has elected some to be saved... That's what he's saying. Then by default, he has elected others not to be saved. If God has elected you to be saved, he makes an offer you can't refuse. Sounds like the mafia, doesn't it? (laughs) And that's what he's talking about here. Infallibly, you will come, is what he said. That's the fourth point of the five points of Calvinism is called irresistible grace. He puts his irresistible grace on you and you have no other choice. That's Calvinism. 
If God has elected you not to be saved, then there is nothing you can do about it. The bottom line of Calvinism is that no one gets a choice in the matter and all of us will be held responsible for our actions. I love Calvinists, but I loathe their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. I believe it is a, a terrible distortion of the character of God and is ultimately a very traumatizing doctrine. If you walk it out to its furthest implication, very few people do. You have to think deep about what they're saying. Now that's how Calvinists would interpret it. Now, we're not a Calvinist church. We never have been a Calvinist church. Based on our, our bylaws that we established years ago, and so we embrace what is known as historical traditional Christianity. Historical traditional Christians believe that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And God draws everyone, but not everyone comes. Do you hear that? That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to prove that to you from this text. And it's important to understand the context. Anytime you read a text, I'm, I'm teaching a class on how to study the Bible, you always read it in the context. It's always context, context, context. There's a historical context here. There's a cultural context. We're going to focus more on the literary context. So the literary context of this verse within the context of the chapter within the, and also within the book of John and then within the fuller context of all of Scripture. That's how you have to read it. And so God's not going to say something that contradicts other aspects of his, of his teaching and what the Bible teaches on this, on this matter. <clears throat> so uh, text without context is a pretext for a proof text. There you go. So, so here's what's interesting. Now, I want you guys, it's my job to kind of help you to, to be smart about this. And there's a lot of churches that teach a lot of, do a lot of proof texting. Not a lot of churches teach the way we teach through the Bible. I'm not saying that we're better than other churches. I'm just saying it's really important to understand verses in the context of chapters. And that's why we, we will take on a big chapter and spend a lot of time reading you know, 30-some-odd verses so that we can look at the full context of this and then go through and dissect it. It's really important for us to understand what God is speaking to us and not somehow spin or twist any of those verses out of the context. And so, chapter context here. So if you just went from verse 44, which is a proof text, look at the next verse because I think the next verse actually explains it for us, what, what it actually means. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets. So, so how, does God, how does God teach? Let me go back to verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so you look at this verse. It, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Sounds like a drawing to me. All be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if they heed, heed his call, they will come to Jesus is what he's saying. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. You'll also notice in the context that over and over again he keeps using this word whoever, whoever, whoever. He's not saying only the elect, he's saying whoever. Seven times, such as in the key passage, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, all-inclusive, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Look at verse, uh, so, that, so what I'm saying is that's an open invitation. Verse 40 Go back to the previous verse of our text, the last one from last week's text. Listen to what it says. For this is the will of my Father, 
What is the will of my Father? What's the will of God? His desire that everyone who looks on the Son, not just the elect, but everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. It's not you have eternal life, then you believe in Him. Calvinists believe that regeneration precedes belief. It's not what he's saying here. You read it out the way the text goes, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life, life transformation, regeneration. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, if you looked at the fuller context of, of of the book of John, I mean, why did he write the book? These things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. That you would believe. That you would believe. John 12, 32, listen to what Jesus said. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw what? All people to me. All I will draw all people to myself. Drawing gets a person to Christ. Faith gets a person in Christ. So here's the question. How does God draw? We believe he's drawing everyone. I believe every day he's drawing everyone. So how does he draw us? Let me ask you this question about the Bible. Is the Bible primarily a book about about man searching out God and discovering God, or is it primarily a book about God searching out man? Which one is it? The second one, God searching man. So how do we know there is a God? Not by human speculation, but by divine revelation. He's revealed himself to us. He continues to reveal himself to us. How does he reveal himself to us? Creation. Romans 1, it says that there is enough evidence of the existence of God in creation that man is without excuse. But what does man do? He says it right there. Man, as man, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sounds like a choice being made there. Sounds like there's a call sent out through creation, and what does man do? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Romans 1, creation. How does God reveal himself to us? Romans 2, conscience. Whether you realize it or not, there's a sense of right and wrong within your heart. Why are you in turmoil over the direction of our country today? Why should it matter? Because it does matter. There's something, there's a sense of right and wrong within our heart. Why do you struggle over suffering? Why do you struggle over injustice? Because there's a sense of right and wrong within our hearts. How does God reveal himself to us? Creation, conscience, that's Romans 2. Romans 3 is Christ. How do we know there's a God? How about this one? He showed up here. He came to this earth. And so you can also go to chapter 19 of Psalms. How has God revealed himself to us? It says the first part of that book, it says through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's just saying nonverbal communication. There's no place on this earth that they can't hear the voice of God through creation. Psalm 19, the rest of that, so it goes from creation to commandments. God wrote a book, number one bestseller of all times. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, every year it's still the number one bestseller. Every year. They just don't say it. They don't, you know, they, they, just, they, they just know it. It's a fact. And so commandments, and then, of course, it, it ends uh, Psalm 19 with conscience. So that's how he reveals himself to us. He's calling. He's calling you every day, every day. He's coming after you. He loves you. But you have to respond to him. 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love him because why? He first loved us. It tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
And you go down a few more verses, verse 19 of chapter 3 of John, what does it say? Jesus says this. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. Sounds like a choice being made to me. Sounds like there's a call. Light has come into the world, but men say, nope, I don't want it. I choose darkness. So the call is out to everyone. And it comes down to whether or not we will heed the call. So that's the first thing. Heed the call. Heed God's call. Here's the second one. Believe in, in God's Son. So it's not enough just to heed His call to know that He's reaching out to us. We have to give our lives to Christ. Listen to what He says in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Once again, all-inclusive. And he goes on, what, what is he talking about here? Well, he's going to describe it for us. So you always read it in the context. Typically, you find the explanation somewhere in the context of what he's talking about or in the bigger context of, of Scripture, somewhere else in Scripture. The best commentary for Scripture is what? It's always Scripture. Yeah. And so... I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And he says, I am the bread of life, so that's part of believing. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So remember the context, he, he fed the 5,000, they're chasing him because they want more food. He's saying, no, you're focused, on, you're focused on food that perishes. You need to focus on the food that endures to eternal life, and I'm that food. So he's trying to redirect them. That's the, that's the uh, context, the cultural context of what's going on here. So this is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking of himself, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He, so he's, he's saying, I'm God in the flesh. You're looking at him. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the and the bread that I will give for the life of the world. So it sounds pretty inclusive to me. We're still in the same context here. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. What's he talking about there? His death. Substitutionary atonement. He died for everyone. Limited atonement is another belief of uh, Calvinism. He only died for the elect. And you see throughout Scripture that no, he died for everyone. This verse, my flesh, he's telling what he's, what he's come to do. So, so what, is, what is believing in Christ? You guys should know this by now because we've been pounding this week in and week out as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. It is truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ entering the head. There's content to our belief. So who he is and what he came to do enters the head, ignites the heart. In other words, it brings both conviction. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me. So that's convicting. But it also brings comfort. He loved me so much he wanted to die for me. So that content who Jesus is, what he came to do, convicts the heart, comforts the heart, and then it works its way out through our hands, head, heart, hands. We make a commitment. What is that commitment? That commitment is a commitment to intimacy with him, to follow him, to love him, to enjoy him, to make him the center of our lives, to have this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. Life's most satisfying reality is knowing him. That's what you're committed to is knowing him and making him known to others. Here's what my highest priority is every day. I didn't do this early on in ministry and it nearly killed me. But the more I got into ministry, and there's no way that I would have survived 30 years of ministry, and let alone this last year. It was pretty, pretty hard, pretty difficult year for my wife and I. And I'm sure it was difficult for, for many of you. My highest priority every morning is to have my heart fully satisfied in my Savior's steadfast love. 
That's why I've always loved Psalm 90:14. The psalmist is saying, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That's what you need too. Here's what I found. When I start the day by having my heart satisfied in him, which I, I believe is really, in, in many ways, the essence of the Christian life and intimacy with him, just being satisfied in him, bringing contentment to my heart. This is what I found when I'm going through really, really hard times and I've got people coming after me and people that, people that hate me and people that say really mean and nasty things about me, that he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23, 5. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even in the midst of adversarial circumstances. That's why it's so important to have your heart satisfied in him. And when I'm there, I'm not, I'm not over, overwhelmed by the suffering and the difficulties of life, nor am I overtaken by the sin of life. Because I've, I find such sweet satisfaction in him. It brings contentment. Now, let me ask you this question. What role does feelings play in our relationship with Christ? Because sometimes we can kind of get confused here because I talked about left brain, right brain, rational, relational. The right brain is kind of has more to do with our emotions. So sometimes we can confuse emotions with this experiential uh, relationship with Christ. So, so what role do emotions play in our life? Let me give you a word picture here. See if you can track with this. Imagine three men walking in a line along the top of a narrow city wall. The first in the line is named fact. The second, faith. The third, feeling. Because the wall is narrow, they need to pay careful attention to where they step. As long as feelings, eyes, are on faith, and faith's eyes are on fact, they will all do fine. But the moment that faith takes its eyes off of fact and turns around to check on feeling, both faith and feeling will fall off the wall. Do you get it? Okay. Feelings are fickle and can easily deceive us, and this is, this is a weakness our enemy loves to exploit. So he tries to use our feelings to get us to doubt our faith. So, so here's, here's the point of this. So when we talk about this point, believe in God's Son, you, you don't feel your way into beliefs, you believe your way into your feelings. Does that make sense? So that's why we need to do the next one here. We need to feed on what Christ has done. That's the third one. So heed God's call, believe in God's Son, feed on what Christ has done. That's what it means to feast, to feast on the bread of life. And nothing will transform your life more particularly when you, when you feed on what Christ has done. Now, let me read this. It's a big chunk here uh, of the text that he talks about this. But listen to the words he uses. See if you can, you can identify how many times he uses this idea, concept, or the word feed. It says, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now you would think, okay, that's good, we got it, Jesus, that's a little gross, but we don't really understand what you're talking about here, but he keeps going. Have you ever had anybody start talking about something? It's like, oh, please stop. Don't talk anymore about that. I'm not sure what he's even talking about here. It's kind of grossing us all out right now. <laughs> Eat your flesh, drink your blood. There was a, uh, 
I was just thinking, if you're new here this morning, maybe you haven't been in church for a while, when we read that text, I mean, it's got to sound really crazy, and you're probably thinking, is this some kind of zombie apocalyptic vampire church? It almost seems like that. It's like, what in the world? Well, let me keep reading. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So he's kind of defining it a little bit of what, he's, what he means by that. As the, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. This is all kind of speaking metaphorically. You know, he's just giving us a word picture. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he, caught, as he taught at Capernaum. Now, you need to know a little bit of, uh, that Roman Catholicism actually teaches transubstantiation. How many are familiar with that term or familiar with what they teach there? And they base it on this text. They actually believe that the communion elements turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus. That's not what this text is saying. And that's what they, that's what they use for this. Now, I believe that communion is certainly a picture. This is kind of, he's talking about this. And when we take communion, communion is a symbol of our salvation. It's, it's a feeding, as he's saying here, it's a feeding on what Christ has done for us. It's, it's symbolic. It's a metaphor. And five times he uses this word feeds, or the idea of feeds, feeds. Now, now here's, the th- here's the issue, and I think this is how I, I would apply it. It's not if you are feeding yourself, but what are you feeding yourself? Every day you're feeding yourself. You're feeding on something. Now, this is what you need to know. Your life is no better or no worse than the thoughts you entertain in your head. Would you guys agree with that? Okay? And in fact, who you are emotionally and volitionally can never transcend your level of thinking. How you're feeling and how you behave in response to life circumstances is based on what you're saying to yourself about life circumstances and what you're feeding on. Your character is no stronger or weaker than your most private reflections. So the thoughts you entertain in your head are the result of what you regularly feed on. Does that make sense? So what are you regularly feeding on? That's why the Bible says, 423 of Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. It determines the direction you're going to go in life. It's going to determine your emotional state and your, and, and your behavior and how you respond. It's what's in your mind, what's in your heart. It tells us in, in Proverbs 23.7, King James Version, as a person thinks within themselves, then so is he. It tells us in Philippians 4.8, it gives us the filtering system for our life. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I can't help but think that if you use that as a filtering system, I know I have, that there's, there's movies I flat out won't watch. There's TV shows I won't watch. There's a podcast I won't listen to because it doesn't fit through that filter. I mean, imagine this. What kind of a person do you think you'll be if you listen to news all day long or political talk, talk radio? You're going to be devastated. You're going to be a wreck. You're going to be a mess. You're going to be fighting everybody around you. You're going to be ticked off. What are you feeding yourself? What are you feeding yourself? That's, that's the question. You see, feelings are important. They reveal your values. 
and they reveal your evaluation of life circumstances. They reveal your values, yeah. I mean, if you're ex- more excited about a sporting event than you are spending time with Christ or, or worshiping Christ, then that's just telling you what your values are. What do you get excited about? What makes you really sad? What makes you angry? It's, it's revealing really important information to yourself. And we, it's, it's almost like second nature, subconscious, we just do it, not realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what am I thinking? What have I been feeding myself? And it uh, also gives you, really shows you your evaluation of, of life's circumstances. See, if you are uptight, anxious, proud, bitter, depressed, discontent, unloving, critical, all of this is symptomatic of a collapsing, counterfeit God. It is revealing to you that you have misplaced your trust, hope, and love. It's also telling you what you're feeding yourself. And so here's the cure. Here's what you've got to learn how to do. This is what I do every day. You've got to learn to take the truth of of God. John 8, 31 and 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will do what? It will set you free. So you've got to learn how to take the truth of God and apply it specifically to where your heart is most restless. Now, the crazy thing about this is that oftentimes I don't realize how restless I am until I'm aggressively driving down the road and my wife leans over and puts her nice, tender, soft hand on my arm. Or we're sitting down and talking to somebody and under the table, you know, I'm getting kind of excited and worked up and she puts her hand over on my leg like this. Now, my wife, she's a sweetheart, and uh, she could very easily say, what are you up so uptight about? Get over it. What's wrong with you? And she doesn't do that while we're driving. <laughs> she doesn't do it at all, okay? Let me just say that. She doesn't ever do it. She just leans over and goes, are you okay? What do you mean? I'm fine. No, no, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering. You're kind of driving. You just ran three cars off the road back there. <laughs> like, uh, I said, oh, I didn't even see him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and so I, I don't oftentimes even know it, and I don't think she knows it either until one of us in tenderness, in tenderness, the gentle answer turns away wrath, the harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15. Tenderness, actually, Proverbs says tenderness increases influence, and she's very tender, she's very kind, and so she'll, uh, she just go, hey, I love you. Are you okay? What's going on? Ah, oh, yeah, I just, I didn't realize it. And so sometimes I have to have a mirror put up in front of me and I begin to realize that. So it's, listen, you cannot apply the truth that will set you free specifically to where your heart is most restless if you're not in touch with where your heart is most restless. Does that make sense? No, we're so to- totally out of touch with that. It just becomes second nature. It's just who we are. It's what we do. And we gotta slow the pace down We've got to take a look. Why am I so uptight? Why am I so upset? Why? What is going on? I need to feed on the bread of life. That's why. That's what it's telling me. Don't condemn those negative emotions. Explore them. Let Christ walk with you through those. Take them to Christ. Apply his truth to your heart so that it can bring freedom to your life. So why do, we, why do we want to do that? Why do we want to feed on the bread of life? Because the more you feed or feast on, on what Christ has done for you, the more you will become a loving, humble, forgiving, patient, joyful, contented person. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in God's word and he meditates on it day and night. He's feeding on it. He will be like a a tree planted by streams of water, bear fruit in season, his leaf will not wither. (laughs) Whatever he does, he will prosper. So let me just take a minute. Let's let's walk this out. I wanna make sure that we're learning how to do this. So how do we do this? How do we do this? 
I hope to teach this in this, uh, in this class I'm teaching on how to study the Bible. This is what you want when you study God's Word. Let me use uh, Psalm 46, 1 through 2 as an example. So it says in, this, in these two verses, God is our refuge God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That's a powerful two verses. So what do you do with a verse like that? You begin to think out the implications of this biblical truth intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. It is asking, what should I think and feel and do in response to this biblical truth? God is our refuge and strength. Yeah, I I need to see that I can run to him and he will strengthen me. And he's, in fact, here with me, a very present help in trouble. I mean, that should move me. That should stir me, that that I'm in the very presence of God, and that should emotionally rid me of my fear. Therefore, we will not fear. How would I be different if this biblical truth were explosively alive in my life? You begin to think that out. And it doesn't happen just that quick. Oftentimes, you even have to argue and preach that biblical truth into your heart until it catches fire. In fact, you're not going to be able to do this unless you do Psalm 4610. That's part of that that chapter. You guys know what Psalm 4610 is? Anybody? Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at your high God. Do you do that? You need to do that. Whether you realize it or not, we are desperate to see his face, to hear his voice, to feel his touch, to know his power, to experience his love. Our hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder culture hinders us from this. I mean, that's our culture. So we must fight against busy schedules and distracted minds and stubborn hearts. And the evidence that we're doing this is not only a contentment, but it stirs up an appetite for God. We want Him even more. I can tell when people are knowing God and getting to know Him and spending time with Him is not only there's a contentment, but they want Him more. If you don't feel strong desires for Christ Jesus, it is not because you have feasted on Him and are satisfied. It is because you and we have nibbled so long at the table of the world and our souls is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great things of God. One of the best things that we could do, nothing will increase your appetite for God like fasting on the world, maybe getting rid of social media for a while or stop watching so much news or quit watching those TV programs that are uh, God-ignoring, man-exalting, sin-adoring, we're just feeding ourselves with garbage. And it would make all the difference in the world if you fasted on the world and started feasting on God's word. So how to feast on the bread of life, heed God's call, believe in God's son, feed on what Christ has done. Okay, here we go. This is where we end it. I'm gonna give you the next three fill in the blanks. You can study this on your own. This is your homework assignment. So let me give it to you and we're gonna wrap it up right here. So, oh, Not so quickly. I got an illustration. This illustration will last 20 minutes. No, it won't. So here's what what I want you to do. When you do that, when you feast on the bread of life, I want you to be able to see the glory of God. And when you do that, you will savor his glory and you will show his glory in your life because of your satisfaction in him. How many are familiar with the acclaimed movie, The Shawshank Redemption? You guys familiar with the movie? Interesting movie. Tells the story of an institutional life in a gritty penitentiary. One day a prisoner defies the prison warden and plays an opera song over the prison's loudspeaker. The main character, Red Redding, narrates over the scene how that song transforms Shawshank as it echoes through the prison. Great scene in the movie. This is what, what he says. 
I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and further than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. For the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. I think it's a beautiful picture that when we feast on the bread of life, we see his glory, (laughs) we savor his glory, and we show it in our lives. Remember how... uh, how Peter responds at the very end because everybody's leaving at this point and he turns to his disciples you guys want to go too and Peter says this he says to, to Jesus Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God what is he saying We have never been more satisfied or more loved or more free or more alive since we have believed in you. The more you see and savor him, the more you will show him and show the world how satisfied you are in him. Next weekend, John chapter 7, we're going to take half of that chapter, Controversy About Jesus, I'll be up here at the end of the service along with any available elders. If you are new, we would love to meet you this morning. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. If you have any questions about this sermon, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. What is God speaking to you this morning? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never made a commitment of your life to Christ. I would encourage you to do that. How do you do that? You acknowledge that your sin separates you from God. Believe that Christ died in your place for your sins and confess him as Savior and Lord. Enter into this relationship with him by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. What are those things you need to begin to fast so that you can begin to feast more on the bread of life and find that contentment that only can be found in him? So, Father God, intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. Wow. We can't believe that we can know you. May every one of us listening to this message heed your call. Believe in your Son and feed on what Christ has done so that we can see, savor, and show his glory unlike ever before. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.